This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 5th, 2019. This is episode 2394 of the Survival Podcast. As we're about to kick over the 100 counter, aren't we? And uh, by the end of this week, really close, and by the end of next week, we will be at episode 2400. Kind of cool. It is Tuesday. It means it's time for a Just Jack show. That's where you, you're stuck with just me. No feedback, no expert council members, no interview. Just me going through a subject. And I was thinking about what to do today, and I went outside and talked to the ducks. And the ducks said, it's really cold out, jerk. Why did you let us out of the house so early? And I said, ducks, i got to let you out. It's time to come out. And they went, oh, yeah, we're ducks. We don't care that it's cold. So then they came out, and they looked at their pools, and they said, hey, jerk. What the hell? Where's our water? So I went and got a shovel and broke the two-inch thick ice off the top of the pools as we've been inundated with global uh, global warming here in March, and the temperature was 19 degrees last night. And as I was breaking the ice loose, I was like, Duck, since I'm breaking this ice loose for you, can you guys give me an idea of what to talk about? I said, hey, ducks, and they kind of lost interest. And they were, well, they were waiting for their water, and they were all over in this little clump, and they were eating, like, plantain and some young lamb's quarters and stuff like that. I said, hey, ducks, what should I talk about? And they said, uh, this stuff over here, dummy. And I said, okay, so I got the ducks ready to go, and we decided we'd do a show on herbs today. That's what the show's going to be about. In fact, it's called 20 Herbs to Grow in 2019. Straight out of the gate, if you do not hear your pet herb on today's show, it is not an instance of herbal discrimination. We were, are an equal opportunity herbal society at the Survival Podcast. I just had to put a limit on how many, and 20 is a lot. Uh, the reason I selected these herbs are as follows. They're all relatively easy to grow. They will all grow in most places where you guys live. Uh, some will be perennial for some of you and not for others, but they will all grow okay in most of America. Uh, they all are immediately usable. You don't have to be some kind of special scientist to be able to use them for something. Most of them will be good culinarily or in tea. Most of them also do have some medicinal effect. All of them are extremely hardy, almost weed-like and hard to kill, which is a good thing. And I like them all, I grow them all, and I use them all, so I know a little bit about all of them, so I can actually talk about them without having to look all of them up and pretend I know something that I don't. So that's why we picked these today. Um, and we're going to talk about why herbs are a survival topic, the primary uses of herbs, and uh, then we're going to go through this list. And then I'll give you some final thoughts on why I think you should be growing herbs in your garden or on your back porch. If you live in an apartment complex, herbs are like the thing that almost anybody anywhere can do on some level. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. I love my Ridge Wallet. I love it for so many reasons, but mainly because it took the giant lump that used to be my uh, billfold off of my butt 
And when I sit in my car now, I don't feel like I'm sitting on a loaf of bread, and it's better for my spine. I also love the fact that if some guy's running around with an $8 wand off of eBay, he can't wand my ass and find out my credit card information and all that other stuff with RFID sniffing. And it looks really cool, and they're a great supporter of the show, and they do a discount for you guys, the audience, so why wouldn't I love Ridge Wallet? I think if you give it a try, you'll love them too. Check them out at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Yeah, I said Backwoods Home. I didn't say Self-Reliance Mag. I said Backwoods Home. Backwoods Home Magazine is back, and they are not just back as far as being available. They are back as a survival podcast show sponsor, and I couldn't be happier. I'm going to tell you guys, like one of the biggest like boosts early on in this show where I felt like I was really getting somewhere was when I got in touch with Dave Duffy over at Backwoods Home because he wanted to talk to me, and he said they wanted to sponsor the show. And he, um, after we kind of went round and round with it, I'm like, he's like, well, what kind of contract is? I'm like, there isn't, but I prefer that you say you'll give it a year because you know it takes time to build up brand recognition and all, and you know. But if it doesn't work, you can leave. And he asked how much it was, and I told him. He's like, well, that's not much at all. And about a month into it, he got in touch with me and said, hey, you know, we ran really expensive advertising on the Michael Medved show on AM radio. We got one sign-up. You've already done way more than that for us in just a couple months. We're going to be around for a long time. And then the magazine went away. And the reason this bothered me is it was my favorite endorsement to do because when you can endorse something you have personally been a customer of for 20 years, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I first found Backwoods Home in 1993 on a shelf at a at a bookstore. At, this was when I first came to Texas. My car broke down, and I had to walk to the mall for something to do until I got my car fixed. I found that magazine, and as soon as I got on my feet and became an adult with a real job, I became a subscriber, and I stayed all the way until they, they ended about a year ago. They decided to take that magazine away. Well, they decided to bring it back. It's available again, and they are back as sponsors. And... When I just think about the writers in, in that magazine and all the years that I worked in corporate America and dreamed of doing what I do now, and the people that are in there and being able to work with people like Jackie Clay and Dave Duffy and Masada Yub, et cetera, it's just awesome. And so I'm so glad they're back. Let's give them a little extra time today to welcome them back as they've risen from the dead. Backwoods Home Magazine. It is, and once again is, because now it's back, my favorite magazine on living the lifestyle that we talk about here at Survival Podcast all the time. Check them out. Next up, let's go ahead and um, just delve right on into it. Again, we're talking about herbs today. Now, I want to start out with why herbs are a survival topic. I mean, you talk about herbs, and like one of our herbs today is lavender. You know, people make soap and perfume and candles out of lavender. So <clears throat> how big of a survival topic is herbs? Well, let's look at like the, the, the elephant in the room with that question where like you don't even understand why somebody would ever ask the medicinal uses of herbs. For thousands and thousands of years, as humans became smart enough to figure out what worked and what didn't and move beyond things just being a folk medicine type thing, um, herbs were what we had. Every medicine was derived from one form of herb or another or some sort of an element like arsenic or something like that. That's that was it. And we think of, you know, people a couple hundred to a couple thousand years ago as being very primitive, but man, they've been vindicated over the years. There's so many things like, well this is a folk remedy for and then they test it and they go, well it actually does what they said it did. So 
just you know, cutting to the chase there, herbs have a medicinal value. And as a modern survivalist, I believe in preserving our health. And one of the ways that we preserve our health is that if we do need to take something, or we do need to use something to remedy an illness, which is, illness is something we don't even understand anymore. So illness, the way to think of illness is not like somebody's sick. It's a lack of wellness. It's a lack of balance. It's a lack of homeostasis. So there's a lot of things that can cause that other than a disease, right? And disease even, really, we should consider that dis-ease. That's the actual root of the word. But, you know, if you have a, 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 if you have a, a giant stick shoved through your stomach, you, you're not well, right? And herbs probably aren't going to fix that. But there are, and you need a mechanical solution. You need a surgeon for that problem. If you have a highly resistant Uh, bacterium, you may need a really, you know, cutting edge antibiotic. But these are all radical things to the body. Being cut by a surgeon, taking a toxin, which all medical drugs are toxins in one form or another. And I'm not saying you're not supposed to use them when it's the right thing to use. But most herbs are not toxins. Many of the herbs are just food. You could eat a bowl of them if you really wanted to. And if they can eliminate that dis-ease and we can do it without a toxin, then we should. So that's just day-to-day. Then if the grid's ever down, the fact that you understand what can be done with herbs is incredibly valuable while you can't get conventional pharmaceuticals or conventional medical help. On top of it, you know, we try to encourage you to like get up off your ass and go outside. And if you spend enough time in the woods, in the field, in the gardens, you're going to get bit by shit. You're going to get scraped. You're going to get scratched. You're going to get sore muscles. And to be able to just look around you and know, oh, that thing there helps with this thing here. I'm going to use it immediately. Um, it is incredibly valuable. Again, back just to day-to-day, or what we'd call maybe semi-off-grid. You're not off-grid, but you are for the next few hours. And you just got stunned by one of those big satanic red wasps in the back of the calf. This happened to me. At Ben Falk's place, when I was up there teaching at one of his PDCs. Big old red wasp stung me right in the back of the calf. And I looked down, and he's got this beautiful flower bed full of, full of echinacea, but what's in there with it is plantain and comfrey. Grab two leaves, mash them up, make them kind of sticky, put it right on that bite, and it was low enough that I was able to pull my sock really high up like a goof, but it was a good time to do it, and use the sock to just hold it in place. 15 minutes later, the bite's gone. Just there's a hole there. You can see how big the damn hole is in those Satan wasps. But there's no pain. There's no itching. There's no redness. So it's a survival topic. Um, the primary uses of herbs, kind of covered it there, but I want to hit all of them and make sure we, we're thinking about that today as we go through these. Culinary and teas. And really, those are two different things. You know, if we put oregano into a, uh, you know, oregano and basil into chopped tomatoes to make a bruschetta, That is different than taking something like calendula and making a tea or taking something like mint and making a tea. But in the end, it's both for us to ingest. And while there may be medicinal benefits, that's not the driving motivation for doing it. We want our, our warm, tepid water to taste good, right? Uh, and we want to relax and we want to enjoy things and we want to smell aromas and flavors. Or we want our, you know, our chicken breast to have flavor since modern chicken has almost no flavor, so we make an herbed chicken. So I kind of just combine those two together. There's medicinal, which we just kind of hit on a few things of that, and I'll be talking about that as we go through the herbs today. And medicinal, 
it's something we need to understand that it can blend, like all of these things can blend back into other components out of these five here. So an herb like rosemary actually is antimicrobial and antibiotic. So if we're using real fresh rosemary in our cooking, if we don't cook the shit out of it, we may kick some carryover effect of that. In fact, most of our medicinal, most of our culinary herbs have either antimicrobial, antibiotic, and other factors like that in them. Parsley does. Oregano does. So even when we're using them for culinary use, we may be getting medicinal and tonifying benefits from them. But what I'm talking about here is more direct medicinal. Again, Satan Red Wasp bites me, comfrey and plantain goes on the bite, bite, swelling goes down. It's immediate, it's obvious, and you know that it works. Sometimes... Herbs can work medicinally that quickly, and sometimes they take more time. What is the problem? Where did it come from? How did you get it? And what we have to understand with, with herbs, and I've used this analogy for years, we can't use replacement therapy or what I call aspirin therapy with herbs and really address the issue. So replacement therapy is, well, I have a headache. And since I have a headache and I don't have any aspirin, and here's white willow, I can take white willow bark and I can boil that and the, the main ingredient they make aspirin from is in white willow bark so that I can drink that tea from the white willow bark and it'll help my headache. Okay, that does work and there is a place for it, but it's not the way to really be thinking because a headache is not a deficiency in aspirin. A headache is some sort of imbalance in the body causing a headache. It could be anything from a severe brain tumor to just too much stress to you ate something really cold too fast. There's a million things that can cause headaches. And if they're chronic and recurrent, then we need to either figure out there is a serious issue or we need to rebalance the system. And herbs are really great to help rebalance the system. The next thing is predator and pollinator habitat. I, I think herbs belong right in your garden, not here's my little herb garden over here and then there's my big vegetable garden over there. That Herbs go everywhere. Herb garden, great. Go ahead, plant one. Put it right outside your kitchen so when you need parsley and it's raining out and you really don't feel like getting fresh parsley, you can step out for three seconds, grab a big old sprig of it, and come back in. Absolutely. But plant herbs in your vegetable garden. Plant herbs in your margins. Plant herbs in your flower beds. Plant herbs everywhere. Everywhere. To create that predator and pollinator habitat. If you want the pollinator in your garden, put the thing that brings the pollinator in in your garden. If you want that predator in your garden... Put that predator habitat in your garden so that predator's right in there. And so that, that smell of that herb is confusing to the pest insect that wants to nom, nom, nom on your tomato. So it's kind of slowed down trying to figure things out and quapa. Yes, that's a word, quapa. The predator consumes it. Also for filling spaces before nature does. So I talked about the margins and the edges there. This is the reality of nature. Nature abhors a vacuum. If you look down and see dirt, something happened. And if you can see dirt a week later or two weeks later or a month later or three weeks later, something really bad happened. Something happened to that soil where nothing wants to grow, and it needs to be corrected so that it can regrow. It is not a natural state of things. It's what we call a disturbance. So if we have any place where there's room for shit to grow, and we don't put something there, nature will. And we'll probably pick something we don't want. It'll probably pick something that we would prefer not be there, and we'll pull it out, and we'll piss the ecosystem off, and it'll say, oh, oh, so, 
That didn't work. Okay, here's some freaking thistle. Now maybe that'll work. And then you pull that out. Okay. And you start an escalation war with nature. You will lose. You will lose. Nature wants something in that spot. So you put something in that spot. Now we build up more predator habitat, more pollinator habitat. We've got another resource. And if we have an aggressive herb growing in a place, we're going to have less or no of ma nature saying, here, I'm going to put something in there. And have you ever thought about that too, really? Like the more you yank shit out, the more you're telling nature, like that thing isn't aggressive enough to survive. And nature's like, oh, okay, well, I'll find something more aggressive. I'll find something more invasive because I need to fix this. Now, this is not, there's not really a, you know, mother nature that goes and visits Tim Allen at the North Pole. Okay. Some of you aren't even old enough to understand that. Um, but this is how nature works. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm personifying it to make it something you can understand. And then the next is nutrient accumulators, mulch and compost, etc. And there's a lot of debate about, You know, is comfrey a dynamic accumulator? Does it truly, you know, accumulate selenium or whatever? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to put it to you this way. If a plant grows in the ground and there are nutrients in the ground and that, that plant has a symbiotic capability of acquiring that nutrient, it's going to. That nutrient will go in the plant and that plant will accumulate it. You can call it dynamic, you can call it static, you can call it run-of-the-mill. I don't give a shit. What I know is when we take and we make things like herbal teas and even ferment them into something like a comfrey tea, and then we pour that shit on our garden, our shit grows better. So I'm not going to get down in the weeds, right, pun intended, of that. Like, does it really die? You know, does it really dynamically? I don't care. I just know that it works. And I know that these plants make great mulches. They make great additions to compost. Uh, they make great compost by feeding their surplus to chickens and ducks. They poop it out and make incredible compost for us. So those are, to me, your kind of five big things. Culinary and teas, medicinal, predator and pollinator habitat, filling spaces before nature does, and nutrient accumulation to make mulch and compost, etc. So let's dig in and go into these different types of herbs and, and get through our list before we run out of time for the day. And I will apologize. Uh, we're talking about herbs today, and I'm actually using a couple right now, um, ginger and, and, and golden seal and echinacea along with some honey on my throat. Um, but herbs do have limits. So when we talk about medicinal use, just understand that herbs have limits. Right now, what's killing me is my wife and her obsession with heat in the winter. So it was 19 degrees last night. It was uh, 21 degrees the night before, so the heater ran all night. It's just killing me, uh, drying my throat out at night. So I'm going to do my best to get through this with you guys, um, and hopefully we'll be back to better weather soon. Um, so before I go into this, I am going to talk a little bit about medicinal stuff. So I, I need to you know, do the disclaimer thing. I am not an herbalist. I'm not a master herbalist. I'm not a certified herbalist. I'm not a pharmacy tech. I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a doctor, medical or otherwise. I am just a guy. I am a guy that has used herbs my whole life. I've done a lot of research. I try to stick to when I recommend anything on the air, things that are safe and gentle, and you really can't screw it up and you really can't hurt yourself. I am not saying that any of these things diagnose, treat, or cure illnesses. Even if medical literature says they do, I can't say that they do because I'm wrong because the government says you can't say that or rosemary becomes a drug. So, for instance, we know... Absolutely know that if someone has scurvy 
and they drink orange juice, their scurvy will go away because scurvy is simply a deficiency in vitamin, deficiency in vitamin C. So it would be accurate if you said that orange juice cures scurvy, but the day you say it and make it as a claim, then it becomes that orange juice is a drug. That is the litigious and screwed-up state-based society we live in. So everything I'm saying is just anecdotal. And if I say something does something, oh, I'm only saying it because I can point to literature that says this somewhere else. It is not my independent claim. And the state can go shove their head up their own ass and leave me alone. All right, so let's start with my herbs. And anybody that's known me for a long time, listened to me talk about this before, probably knew the number one herb on my list even though the list is not in order of preference or anything, but just the first one I thought of when I started making the list, comfrey. Now, comfrey is an herb that the government says if you ingest it, it will kill you and blow up your liver. I am not going to go through it all over again, but I do not believe that comfrey cannot be used internally safely because we have 10,000 years of human history using comfrey internally safely. Huge amounts of comfrey over time can be detrimental to anybody, so can huge amounts of Twinkies. But I'm really not even going to talk about comfrey from an ingestion standpoint today. I have done whole episodes on comfrey. It is that awesome of a plant. The main things I want to point out for you guys today, though, are, number one, it's a great fodder plant. Yes, it's not safe for you, but your goats, your cattle, your chickens, etc. can eat some comfrey. Funny that. And it's really a great high-protein green for that use. It's not something you want to feed exclusively. It belongs in, in little bits and bobs of lots of things, just like nature does. It is also an incredible healing plant. Um, I have seen comfrey do things that if I didn't see it myself, I would think are not possible. Cuts, scrapes, abrasions, any kind of shallow wound, comfrey will cause it to heal faster. That's what all the literature says, and that's what I've observed and seen. But it doesn't heal Because that, or it doesn't treat the illness of a scratch, whatever. There's one thing you need to know about comfrey if you're using it medicinally um, on a wound. It works so well that it should not be used on deep wounds. It can be like stitching a deep wound that needs to be open. It will cause the top to heal shut and it can trap infections. That's how effective it is. It's also good for uh, bumps, sprains, bruises. Um, I've talked many times about the, the amazing results I had with using it on a knee with a, uh, a torn AC, uh, LCL and MCL ligament, which I was told would have to have surgery, and, and to this day I haven't, and my knee's as good as it was before the injury occurred. With comfrey, you need to know there's pretty much three, there's, there's like way more than three, but available commonly to the gardener, there are three types of comfrey. Um, Officinalis, which is the wild form comfrey, and it will reproduce from seed. So it gets little flowers on it, the flowers get pollinated, they make seeds like anything else, and boom, it'll grow somewhere else. And if you get comfrey seed, and you grow it, you're growing some form of wild comfrey, not a hybrid, that will produce some seed, and that means the one thing you do know is it will show up other places. I have never found this to be a problem. I hear people say it's invasive or whatever, but I've never found a person that actually understands what it is Understands how valuable it is saying I got too much comfrey. It's just not a problem. Then there are a lot of Bockings, and Bocking is actually a place in England where one of the, the premier researchers that did work on comfrey did his work, and he decided to use the term Bocking because it would be the same in any language. It wouldn't be different you know, if he called it cultivar. Right or variety four, variety three, variety five, then it would be a different word in French. 
So by naming it after a town, it would make it universal in every language when anybody did medical research or any kind of research, botanical research on it, they would use the term balking. And of the, all the balkings that came out of this research, and the man's name should be etched in my head as failing me right now, it was 4 and 14 that became most noted. And one is supposed to be better for, you know, fertilizer, and one is supposed to be better for forage. I have not noticed any different. I have all of it growing on my property. The ducks, the chickens, etc. eat all of it. It all works really great. It all does what it's supposed to do, so I don't even care. Uh, but the other way to propagate it, and you need to do this if you have a bocking, a, a hybridized cross, is to take root cuttings and just plant a root cutting. And a piece as small as the tip of your finger will grow into a new plant. I have literally taken huge coffee plant growing. Take a sharpshooter shovel. It's also known as a troweling spade. They're the really long, narrow ones. And just, just look like you're killing it. Just hacked into the center of it and just yanked off half the plant. Pulled it up out of the ground, kicked the dirt back in the hole. Plant dies back a little bit and then just takes off again. Take the piece you yanked out, stick it in the ground somewhere else. Most of the top growth dies. Looks like you killed it. A couple days later, a few little sprigs are coming up. Next thing you know, another big plant. So it is the easiest thing in the world to propagate, and it does so many wonderful things. You should be growing comfrey. I'll leave it there because if you want to know more about comfrey, just go to the website, put in comfrey, and start listening. Uh, but next up, I want to talk about rosemary. Rosemary to me is one of those plants that I, I don't understand why everybody doesn't grow it, including people that are not even really doing a lot of gardening from a standpoint of food production. It looks like a little pine tree. It gets cool little flowers on it if it, if it matures enough. You can prune it to keep it small, or you can let it get very big. It smells amazing. About the only way to kill it is you either have to plant it someplace where it will get absolutely no water whatsoever, or you can overwater it. Um, it is incredibly hardy, incredibly drought tolerant, especially once it's established, and it smells good, and it has so many uses. Um, rosemary, as a culinary herb, is one that can also be beneficial medicinally. So I don't get you know overly worked up about meat consumption and all the FUD around that and what have you, but when you grill meat, especially high-temperature grilling, and you get that wonderful char on there, it does create a small amount of carcinogens. And it's not really anything to really, really worry about. But whatever you season your steak with, if you use some powdered rosemary in it, it pretty much nullifies everything about that. That's just one incredible thing that rosemary does. Um, it actually is really kind of cool used in teas. I don't like to use a lot of it, but a couple needles into an herbal tea kind of creates this, there's like this background pine type thing going on. It's hard to put your finger on. It pairs beautifully with lamb. Probably the best way to grow rosemary if you want to grow it yourself is to either go ahead and purchase uh, started plants or grow it from seed. It's 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 not really the easiest thing in the world to start from cuttings or what have you, but it definitely is something that you know anybody can grow, and if you get good started plants, you you I mean if you kill it, you've killed everything else. Um, you can do root divisions with it once you get, but I would wait till you have a really big plant before you try to do that. A lot of times, sometimes it'll trail low, and those low branches, if you put some dirt over them. They'll root, and then you can take them off. We call that layering. So that's another good way to use rosemary. But um, this stuff has been used medicinally for thousands of years uh, to help clear the head. 
um, to help clear sinuses, to help calm stomachs. Again, these are all kind of folk medicine uses. Uh, when you go into what they call herbal actions, and I have a whole series on 40 herbal actions, four shows, 10 actions a show. Uh, you can look those up, too, if you want to know more about herbs in general. But it's a tonic. It's an astringent. It's a stimulant. It's a carmative. Carmative means it calms people down. Um, it, it's a, it definitely what's known as a nervine, which means it actually helps to calm the nervous system. So it has all these medicinal uses. Now, it's usually more like an essential oil or a tincture or something like that of rosemary to get these more medicinal components out of them. But that, I mean, it's just adding to that pharmacy in the backyard. The next one, and it just goes and fits right in with rosemary so well with so many uh, Mediterranean dishes, and this is where these two herbs really grow just crazy wild, uh, is oregano. Oregano is another one of those things like, you know, you go into somebody's house, And if they cook it all, and you go, do you have some you know, seasoning, spices? They'll say, yeah, we're over there in a cabinet or whatever. I guarantee you they either have oregano or they have you know, Italian herb blend, which is going to be mostly oregano and rosemary. right? So they're going to have these herbs. And like, so you're like, if you grow anything, why wouldn't you grow this plant? It's another one of those plants, incredibly drought tolerant. That doesn't mean it can grow where there is no water, but it can grow in very, it likes to be more dry than wet. Both rosemary and oregano are perennial. Oregano is perennial up to about zone six. If you like, when in the when like you live in Pennsylvania, you got oregano growing. When you you're heading into your fall and it kind of starts to die back, if you just mulch the crap out of it and then pull the mulch back in the spring, it'll usually come right back for you. Down here in Texas, we don't even do anything; it just survives. It might even completely die back, but it comes back from the roots. Rosemary, rosemary is an evergreen, so. Um, it, it's hardy into some pretty cold climates. Down here, it doesn't even blink. So those, that's another nice thing about comfrey, rosemary, and oregano. All that we've talked about so far are all perennials. So we, once we establish them, we know they're coming back. Oregano obviously has massive culinary uses. It's very easy to start from seed. Every big box store, nursery, mom and pop or otherwise has oregano plants in the spring. Really recommend that you plant it. And it has a, a long history of being used medicinally as well. Again, generally oils and things like that that are a more concentrated form. But it's an antimicrobial. It's an antibiotic. Um, it, it has all these wonderful things going for it, and it doesn't ask for much. And it's a kind of mostly low-growing postrate herb, so it's good for filling spaces that would otherwise be filled with things, you know, I don't know, like bull nettle or something. You really don't want, you know, nut sedge or something like that. Um, next up, I, instead of giving, like, you know, give comfrey, rosemary, oregano, I just did this one, mints. So all mints. So it could be spearmint, peppermint, sweet mint. I don't care, right? Mints are great. Um, even though some of the things we're going to talk about today are actually members of the mint family, when I say mints here, I mean that if you pick it up and you crumble it in your fingers and you smell it, you say, ah, mint. It might be, like I said, spearmint, peppermint, sweet mint, but there's a mint to it that really is minty. Um, obviously, tea. Mint tea is just one of the true pleasures of the backyard. The fact that you can walk outside, grab a couple sprigs of something, throw it in some hot water, sweeten it with a little honey, and have something as fantastic as a mint tea is really... To me, it's a great entry-level product to get people into gardening. It's also the easiest thing on planet Earth other than comfrey to propagate, and it's probably as easy. 
Propagating mint is as simple as we take a sprig of mint, take a bowl, a, a bowl, pot, cup, whatever of wet soil, stick our finger in it, put the mint sprig in there, and smash the dirt around it, and keep it somewhere shady for a few days, and it will root and start to grow. You can put it in water or whatever to you know root it, but honestly, you take a sprig of mint, put it in the ground, it grows. Invasiveness. This is one of those places. Oh, it's invasive. What does it do to hurt anything? Especially like, yes, yeah, sweet mints and all, they can grow really tall. But peppermint grows really low. Do you think your garden would actually be hampered if mint covered every square inch of ground? And when you planted a pepper, you had to like pull some mint out of the way and make a hole and stick the pepper in there. You think a pepper's not going to grow because it's, it's got mint around its feet? You see what I'm saying? Like This is as good a ground cover as something like white clover, except it doesn't fix nitrogen. So I, I just think, like, I'm not necessarily saying you should go plant mint in your garden, because I don't do that. But I'm just saying, I don't worry about it either. I really don't. Um, and it also has an incredible list of medicinal benefits. And I'm not going to go deep into the medicinal benefits of each plant here. These are things you can kind of learn for yourself. But one of the things I have found mint to be really good for is cold and flus and opening up congestion, specifically in the form of essential oils or any other way, like another way that you can use mint to open congestion and open pores, especially a lot of times you get sick, you know, you kind of get sticky. And a bunch of, like basically you're making a big giant vat of mint tea. And then put like a towel over your head and lean over this steaming, you know, bowl of mint tea and inhale a few times and let it permeate your skin. And then, you know, go ahead and properly wash your face. It's amazing how it feels. So definitely mint. Basil. Basil is the first herb that we've talked about today that is not perennial, no matter where you are. Basil grows to a certain point, and it dies. It's an annual. And so we have to replant it. The good news is that if we plant basil and we get a good long growing season out of it, we will get so much basil seed, we will never need a piece, you never need to buy a package of basil seed ever again for the rest of our lives. Um the amount of seed that comes off one basil plant is, is amazing. It is incredibly good for attracting pollinators. When my basil's in bloom by midsummer, every morning when I go outside, it is covered in pollinators. Honeybees, mason bees, little wasps, anything that's a pollinator is all over it, all about it. Obviously, the flavor of basil is well known. Um, real pizzas, pretty much cheese, sauce, and basil, and 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 dough. Like they call it a margarita pizza. Um, my favorite use for basil is combining with tomatoes and garlic and salt and olive oil to make bruschetta or bruschetta, depending on how you choose to pronounce it. And there's nothing to me that makes me feel like summer's here. Though when I'm able to go out to my tomato plants. And I can pick a whole bunch of tomatoes, maybe cherry tomatoes or whatever, and dice them up, throw them in a bowl, get about five or six big basil leaves, and roll them up like they're a cigarette, and then slice them into thin ribbons. Put those in with that, uh, those tomatoes, chop them some fresh garlic, throw it out in there, um, add a little bit of olive oil and a little bit of salt to taste, mix that up, throw it in the refrigerator, leave it sit for an hour. It's summer in a bowl. And it's that simple. And you can't go in your cabinet and get dried basil leaves out and make that and have it be any good. 
Dried basil does. I mean, you can try all these herbs. I would say rosemary is probably the one herb that I actually like better dried than fresh. Except, I'll give you a rosemary trick here in just a second. Um, I'll give you the rosemary trick when we get to thyme. But, uh, you know, you, there's certain things you can do with a dried herb, and there's certain things you can't. And you can't make what I just gave you, that simple bruschetta recipe, and have it be completely off-the-hook awesome with a dried herb. It doesn't have that fresh, out-in-the-front flavor. Now, I'll tell you the secret to the rest of this. Even though I'm paleo, it's bread. It's bread. Something like a French baguette, cut it on a bias, which means kind of an angle. Take some olive oil. And for this, use, use granulated garlic. You'll get more garlic flavor in the oil than you will with fresh garlic. Some granulated garlic in the oil. Mix it up. Let it sit a while. Get a little brush, like the ones I recommend at T-Spaz, which is where you can shop online on the website. Get a little brush and brush your bread with the garlic oil. Throw it in the oven, under the broiler, just until it barely toasts. Take it out, and then serve your bruschetta on top of that. Soft side of the bread down. The toast side will keep it from soaking through too much. The bread will still be soft. Yeah, bread is something we eat once in a while, guys, even here. And it's that summertime when you're working really hard, you're working off the extra calories, it doesn't matter. Uh, it is just fantastic. Next up today, um, chives. Uh, both onion and garlic chives, I try to get them growing anywhere that I can and everywhere that I can. It's just such a hit of flavor. And my favorite way to use chives is you just, you know, when you're out harvesting your stuff for whatever you're going to do that day, take some shears with you, and I'll just cut a, you know, a little bundle of them. And uh, just use the shears to cut them up into a salad, into a soup. If you break down any potato, they're fantastic on that. Uh, chives just bring so much happiness. And they're a perennial herb as well. So they bring that onion-garlic bite, but with a sweetness and a mildness that you don't get when you use the direct product. And again, really easy to grow, best grown from seed. There is a secret to them. In fact, all alliums which is onions, garlics, shallots, etc., when it comes to seed. Alliums have one of the shortest shelf lives for seed that there is. If you, you know, people say, well, you got to have fresh seed. But if you have tomato seed that's five years old, and my grandfather had tomato seed that's five, ten years old, and a little envelope sitting in a cigar box outside in his shed, dry, dark, but just left to shit. 80-90% germination rate, no problem. No problem. Alliums, when they're more than a year old, their germination rate will drop to like 50% or lower. Two years old, you might get no germination. You might get lucky, and they might all germinate, but if you're going to buy seed, you want to make sure that you buy really fresh seed when it comes to chives, onions, anything like that that you're going to plant from seed. No more than a year old. So you want the, the most recent marked packages you can get when it comes to alliums. Uh, next, going on to thyme. Uh, thyme is one of my absolute favorite herbs combined with rosemary. You know, if you gave me <laughs> garlic, salt, pepper, rosemary, thyme, basil, I could come up with a thousand dishes I could make with variations thereof. So thyme is another one of our Mediterranean herbs. When you say Mediterranean herb, think useful weed. The type of thing that 
Unless everything dies, it's going to live. Thyme is a trailing herb, so it stays really low, really prostrate. It's a good ground cover. It's good for filling in the gaps. It is wonderful if you have, like, it depends, like, you know, how serious is your sun. But if you have a place that in the afternoon has kind of like a warm rock wall, brick wall, or something like that, and you have thyme trailing over it, as that warms up, the smell of that just fills an area. Now, you can have it, you know, you can bake anything to death, especially here in Texas. So you got to think about that. But that is really a great use for it. I mentioned with rosemary that I don't really, that I actually prefer a dried rosemary to a fresh rosemary. I think you can get too much of the pine flavor from fresh rosemary. It seems to be mitigated with the dry. Um, for any kind of a rub on steaks or something like that, I like the dry needles. I put them through a spice grinder and they make almost to a powder, mix them in with a steak seasoning. Fantastic that way. But one of the best ways in the world to make a steak and really take it up a notch is you do it like a reverse sear, which is where you put it in the oven, you bring it up to temperature, and then you take it out of the oven and then you finish it in a pan or you straight up cook it in a pan or you do like the sous vide thing and you finish it with a pan. Well, what you do is you get a, like a, a sprig of rosemary, like a whole limb, and a couple sprigs of thyme, and take a little bit of string or whatever and bind them together like a brush. Lay them in that oil in the pan drippings and kind of take that up and brush your steak with that. And then that flavor that they bring kind of kissing the outside of that steak with is freaking off the hook. It really is. But as good as thyme is as a, um, a culinary herb, it is actually an incredibly medicinal herb. Again, it's, it, it's funny, but, you know, the, the, the main uh, herbs that we cook with, you know, gar, uh, garlic definitely, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of now, you know, parsley, thyme, basil, oregano, rosemary, these things are like in everybody's spice cabinets. They're all antimicrobial. They all anti have antibiotic properties. properties. They all have tonifying properties. So they're definitely worth growing. Next up, parsley. Parsley, so thyme is also a perennial. Uh, chives are a perennial. I'm, I'm a little off today. Sorry about it, guys. Um, but parsley is what you call a biannual. Parsley is in the same family that carrots are, by the way. And parsley will grow a great, huge, white taproot that looks like a lot like a carrot. And when your parsley goes to seed... You can actually pull the parsley up, peel that root, and use it as a root vegetable. And it's actually pretty dadgone good. It's really strong in parsley flavor, so it's not something you want like a bowl of. But you can use bits and pieces of it cooked with other root vegetables and things like that. That's like when it's done. When you let it go to seed, you can harvest seed for replanting, or you can harvest seed and use seed, because parsley seed is actually good as a seasoning as well. And of course... Your first year of growth, you get all those wonderful parsley leaves, whether it's a flat or curled parsley. And in America, I don't think we respect parsley enough. I think it's changing. I think people have started to. But, you know, back in the 80s when I was a kid, what parsley was is you went to a place, and you ordered a meal, and then your meal came out, and on the side of your meal was a little sprig of parsley. And you're like, well, what is that? This is what makes the play look pretty. I think there was some comedian that was like, You know what would make my play look pretty? An extra shrimp would make my play look pretty. But, you know, parsley has an amazing flavor. It pairs beautifully with potato. Um, I never make a soup or a stew 
Let me think about this. If you don't count gumbo, right? If you don't count gumbo type stews. But if I make like a traditional stew or soup, there's almost always parsley in it. And uh, so what'll the thing will happen with the biannual, though, is so you'll have this first year. You'll be able to cut, and it'll come again, cut, and it'll come again. You go into the spring of your second year, it'll produce more than it ever did. And all of a sudden, you'll see a leaf form change. And instead of growing those great culinary leaves, it'll make this new shape of a leaf, and it won't really taste very good. And it'll start sending up a center shoot. And that center shoot is going to eventually produce a flower and a buttload of seed. This is where a lot of people go, okay, it's time for new parsley, and they pull it out. No, don't do this. Parsley is one of those things you want to be weed-like. You want it everywhere in your property. This is like one of Bill Mollison's thing when it came to a backyard design for permaculture. The first thing you wanted to do was get parsley as thick as you could everywhere. And if you let that come up, you're going to end up with this huge... Almost looks like baby's breath flowers, a little smaller though. Just white flowers, massive white flowers. And if you just let that go and you come out, it will be just inundated with pollinators and predator insects. It's just great habitat. And eventually the flowers will fall off. And because it gets so much pollination activity, your fertilization rate is huge. You'll get a huge seed head. And you can save some seed, but just you can take some seed for replanting. You can take some seed for a seasoning, and then you spread seed everywhere. And then, okay, the plant's going to die. It's a biannual. It lives for two years. This is when now we're going to pull it up, and we're going to harvest the root. I mean, think about getting that much from one plant. We get a year of a cutting herb. We get another almost year of a cutting herb. We get a mass of seed. We get a massive pollinator activity. I mean, I've had parsley plants. They grow up as tall as me when they send that shoot up. And then we get to be able to spread this plant yet again and again. And you will have native wild parsley. will begin to de- develop on your property. You'll build a land race of parsley. Got to have it. It's just one of those just amazing plant that we just take for granted. Next up, sage. Now we're back to another perennial. I love perennials. Sage has a tremendous amount of uses, including shamanic uses as like something that you basically roll into like a uh, cigar and burn for the aroma of it. And white sage, of course, is what uh, a lot of Native Americans in the Western United States use. But sage is a plant that has variants all over the world, and it's been used in similar ways all over the world. And what I generally think of when I think of like traditional herbal uses and shamanic things and stuff like that, A lot of, it's, I'm going to upset some people here, but a lot of the stuff that you see, like these medicine men and stuff do, I think a lot of it's hokum. I really do. I think a lot of it has no basis or grounding in fact whatsoever. And a lot of it does have a basis and grounding in fact. When I see the same thing, when I see that pattern emerge, that everybody does this thing with this thing, or this variant of this thing, and it, it evolved in separate cultures at separate times to be the same thing, I tend to believe there's something to it. As a culinary herb, sage is one of my favorites. I do not make turkey without sage. I do not make sausage without sage. Um, my favorite way to use sage with sausage is the same way I describe uh, basil. It's one of the best culinary skills you can learn. You get your big leaves, you make a stack, and your smallest ones go to the top. So you make a stack of leaves, and you roll it up really tight like you're making a cigarette, 
take a sharp knife and you you cut ribbons out of it. I put that in the sausage and it's just so fantastic. A traditional, you know, pre breakfast pork sausage or even an Italian pork sausage just sets the flavors off. Really, really hearty. Great flowers as it grows. Bushes can get really bigger. You keep prunes small. Um, pretty easy to start from seed, but it's one of those that once it starts growing, you can make more. So once you get a good size sage bush going, you can kind of dig around the edge, find some roots, pull a piece off, and just plant it somewhere else, and it'll grow. So to me, it's one of those ones that makes a lot of sense. You can buy, you know, plants at box stores even for three bucks. So six bucks, you got two sage plants. Take care of them for a year, and you got sage for the rest of your life. So to me, it's one of those ones. If you want to save time, you only can start so many seeds a year. I'd really look to buying plants on. Next one, dill. Dill's an annual. It's also what's known as a self-reseeding annual, meaning that if you let it go to seed and leave it alone, it is coming back. My uh, my grandmother grew. Uh, my grandmother, my grandparents, I should say, grew a really nice garden, about a quarter acre kitchen garden uh, that I grew up learning everything I knew about gardening before I started my walk down permaculture lane from my grandfather. And one 25-foot-long row was nothing but cucumbers to make pickles. Then there was one row kind of on the end, and it was just kind of like all kinds of stuff grew in there, like Volunteer garlic grew in there. Volunteer dill grew in there. And we might pop a few things in there, but pretty much it was like all we did with that last row was redig and turn the soil every year. And they just let it alone. And it grew dill like crazy. So whenever my grandma was making pickles, she'd send me down there to get some dill. And when we got toward the end of the season, we'd go down and take a bunch of seed. We'd always leave some behind. And she would just take the heads of it and just cut them off and just shake some of it back into the soil, kick dirt on it, and leave it there. Pennsylvania winter comes in, two, six, two to six foot of snow over top of it at times. Spring comes, dill comes back. I wish it grew that easily here. I really do. I haven't been able to grow dill really well here. Um, but that's the best way to grow dill is to get a large supply of seed, You know, something in the neighborhood of like several ounces and, and direct sow into multiple areas until you find a place where it likes it on your property. One of my problems with dill on the, this property is that ducks like dill. So when I do get little dill plants coming up, if the ducks find it, well, it's, uh, it's duck dill, not jack dill. My favorite use for dill is fish. Grilled fish and dill just, man, they belong together. God, but they belong together, man. Um, I'm not as big on the pickle thing as my grandmother was. But i tell you the other thing I love about dill. I just love the smell of dill. You know, if I'm walking somewhere and there's some dill, I'll just run my hands through it and just smell my hands. It's just, there's something really grounding about the smell of dill. And I love dill seed as a seasoning as well. Again, I don't really grow as much as I wish I could. But what I can grow, I get a lot of uh, mileage out of. Really like it in salads as well. Well, I'm not huge on uh, cucumbers, like a Greek cucumber salad where you use a little bit of yogurt and you make a dressing and put dill in that that is just off the hook good believe it or not dill goes fantastic with carrots like a, a glazed or roasted carrot and then you want to use the fresh dill at the end so you kind of like you have the carrots cooked and then whatever you're you're, you're kind of basting them with you give them a base and you hit them with the fresh dill at the end just fantastic now you might really think that dill is one of those things that 
doesn't really have any medicinal value. But just a few of dill's traditional uses include fever and cold, cough, bronchitis, infection, spasms, nerve pain, um, menstrual cramps, sleep disorders. Now, again, I'm not saying it actually cures any of this stuff, and I'm not going through like exactly how to use it for that today because the show would go too long. I'm just saying that like a lot of these herbs that we just look around and see as food have all these medicinal benefits. It's a matter of learning how and when to use them for it. But my view is when we're eating lots of fresh herbs in our diet, and dried herbs too because we can't have fresh herbs year-round, we're constantly providing these little bits of tonifying effect, and we have an elevation of our overall health. Uh, so you can learn more if you want to you know, Google that stuff about dill. Lavender is my next one. My, my wife hates lavender, so I, I only have so much of it around. Um, I have found that she doesn't actually hate lavender. What she hates are lavender products, and she hates lavender products because they have too much lavender smell in them, and it's overpowering. But when there's actually like lavender, she's like, oh, that smells good. I'm like, you know what it is? She's like, shut up, because uh, <laughs> she knows what's coming next, right? Uh, but lavender is an incredibly hardy plant. It's actually a really good plant to grow, you know, on, on a large scale as a commercial plant because it's used in so many uh, different products, soaps and creams and bath riches and stuff, uh, and it has medicinal value as well. It also, though, is a good culinary plant. There's a lot of things that you can use lavender in when you're cooking and things that maybe you wouldn't normally expect. Generally, not the flowers, but pretty much the leaves and spikes dried and then crunched up can be used in place of rosemary in just about any uh, recipe. Flowers, I've seen lavender flowers used in things like cookies and baked goods. For you mixologists, lavender simple syrup has a whole range of things that can be done with it uh, in mixing drinks. And if you're like me and you try to keep sugar down even when you're consuming alcohol and you're using small amounts of simple syrup, it can, it can do this kind of simple, subtle thing and if you combine it with something like smoking a cocktail, so you do like, you know, a cloach smoke or something like that, where you lend a smoky flavor to like a bourbon drink, and it has this little bit of like a lavender thing in the background, you counteract the sweetness with some bitters, it's really cool. And you, you it's one of those things where you're like, what is that? I'm not quite sure what that is. But for all the stuff you can do with lavender, my main reason for growing it is I want it in the ground growing. Uh, puts those you know sprigs of flowers on huge pollinator and predator plant. That's the main reason I like to grow it, and it's very hardy. It's up there with them. You know, it's the one of the Mediterranean herbs. It's got all that going for it. My next one, I guess you could debate on whether it's uh, it's an herb or not. Some people would say it isn't because it's a weed, and I'd point out that all herbs are weeds and all weeds are herbs. Uh, they are all herbaceous plants, right? And it is lamb's quarter. And you probably don't have to cultivate lamb's quarter wherever you are. It probably will show up at some point on its own. It's almost inevitable if you're using cow manure that's not 100% composted that some of it's going to come up out of that. Because if lamb's quarters grow where cows are, cows are going to eat it. And if they get the seed in their poop, it passes through. Um, I have it growing all over my property. Uh, I can only get so much out of it because the ducks eat it. Now that there's 10 ducks instead of 150 ducks, I can actually get some of it for myself. My favorite thing about lamb's quarter is when it's early in the season, the plants are under a foot tall, and I just cut entire plants and cook them as greens. 
Holy crap, are they good. They are better than any spinach you will ever eat. They're fantastic in salads. One of the other things I really like to do, like if I have people over and I'm making a salad, especially in the spring, and I'll, I'm going to save some of the other stuff that I would use in that salad here because another of the plants are coming up here in a moment, but I'll make a salad and it won't just be like lettuce and the vegetables and stuff from the garden. I'll basically forage the property. And I'll use just a little bit, like maybe some nasturtium flower would be one of the things we might put in there. Uh, black locust blossoms during that three-week period when we get the black locust blossoms. We'll put them on there. They have like this sweet pea flavor. And lamb's quarters. And what I'll try to do is I'll make my salad and I'll take like these special ingredients and kind of put them on the top of the, you know, make salads in bowls so everybody gets their own bowl and put those, you know, a couple of little lamb's quarter leaves and then some of the nasturtium and... Uh, I'll go ahead and spill the beans. Wild garlic blossoms and these these uh, black locust blossoms. The, when it's just sitting there, and maybe a couple little bits of nasturtium green as well, you, the person sits down and they look at it and they feel like, I'm in like a $100 a plate steakhouse. Because you just don't get that anywhere. And you, the thing is, you probably can't get what I just described at a steakhouse. They might use elements of it. You might get some nasturtium. You might get some... You know, in a really hip place, you might get some lamb's quarter here and there, but you won't get it all in one place. So I, I love lamb's quarter for that. The seed is incredibly high in protein, so those of you that do eat breads and things like that, if you're looking to up your protein, you can collect a ton of seed off a couple lamb's quarter plants. And then you can just take a small handful of seed and knead it into your bread dough, and you jack the protein up. It also, they taste good. They're really, really small, but when you cook them in the bread, they kind of get almost like a poppy seed, like a crispness to them, and you get this kind of like a crunch, a little bitty crunch in the background from them. Um, how much? Well, one year, I had a lamb's quarter plant growing right in my garden, and everyone's like, oh my God, if you don't take it out, there's going to be so many lamb's quarter plants next year, and I'm like, yeah, I hope so. So I let this thing grow, and it got like over my head tall. The stalk was like, you know, as big around as like a water bottle. And uh, it put on just a ton of seed. And I just waited and waited until it started to get to where, like, if you touched it, it would fall off. I went out with a five-gallon bucket, and I cut the seed stalks off, and I just smacked them on the side of the bucket. And once it stopped falling off that way, I just took my hand and raked it down. And I took a one-gallon uh, zip-top bag and dumped it in there, and it was well over half a bag of seed off a single lamb's quarter plant. Now, admit it, this was a big lamb's quarter plant. It was growing not, you know, where lamb's quarter usually did. It was growing in the corner of a very fertile garden. Uh, but that just tells you, you have basically what would amount to a protein grain yield from lamb's quarter as well. And it is a weed, so it grows anywhere. And I don't know any livestock that doesn't eat it. Ducks eat it. Chickens eat it. Quails eat it. Rabbits eat it. Goats damn sure eat it. Sheep eat it. Cattle eat it. The way and this is from it, it's from Eurasia is where this plant's originally from. It's a member of the goosefoot family, the chinopodium family, uh, same same family that uh, amaranth is part of. Um, the same family that uh, orach is is part of. Uh, so it's it, it's it's got a lot of um, culinary plants that it's in the same group as, but we generally call it pigweed in this country. And we don't respect this plant. We don't respect it at all. But the way it got here was when people first started settling this area, they knew full well that there was a huge protein yield 
and that this was a very hardy plant for their cattle and for their pigs, hence pigweed. And that's why they brought it. But don't think our early settlers didn't understand the value of this as a spring green. And the one real cool thing about it is it does start growing really early in the year. And it grows late into the year. It grows all the way until the first frost. But the shoots, the young shoots, are the best eating. And they're one of the first things that you can harvest and eat. And even though the seed has a much higher protein yield, as anything in the Amaranth family does, um, the leaves actually are fairly high protein for a vegetable. And there's a secret to, to um, lamb's quarters as well. So everybody loves to eat it in the spring because it's tender and it tastes really good. It's even good enough to use raw in a salad. If it's like I would not make a lamb's quarter salad. I would make a salad with lamb's quarters in it. But as you get later in the year, your leaves get kind of they're already they're never juicy, but they're more dry and they're kind of mealy and they don't taste really good. And even when you cook them, they don't taste that good. But what you do is once a lamb's quarter plant gets to a certain size, you cut it really low, like you know six, eight, ten inches from the ground. And it'll you know, basically piss nature off, and it comes back stronger. So it'll coppice, just like trees do. And it'll start sending out all these new shoots. Let those new shoots get about four to six inches long and cut them off, and you have fresh growth leaves, and they taste really good. You can't do that the whole season, but you can extend your, your um, lamb's quarter harvest you know, several months by picking a few plants to do that with, as long as you can keep your animals from eating them all. So I love that plant. Um, best way to get seed for amaranth, I'm sorry, uh, for lamb's quarter is ask around someplace where it is and go get some in the wild. You can buy it. It just seems like one of those things like you're really wasting your time buying it. You can probably find it, but if you can't, go ahead and buy it. Uh, next up, culantro. What? Cilantro, you fool. No, culantro. Culantro, uh, is a relative of cilantro and coriander, um, But it has a different leaf form. It tastes very, very similar. But it doesn't bolt really fast in the heat. I can't grow cilantro here. No matter how hard I try, it always goes straight to a seed production. It doesn't matter when I plant it. It don't matter how much seed uh, shade I give it. It doesn't. I don't know what it is. It's like it hates me. This stuff grows really, really well. It's a little bit harder to find. Sometimes you'll even find plants in the spring, in the box stores and stuff. Bonnie's, uh, which is like your biggest plant producer, does produce it, though you don't always find it. Um, but if you like cilantro, and you know all about cilantro, and you'd like to grow it, and you've given up like so many people, because it really has a specific climate type that it does well in, and anything other than that, it goes straight to coriander, Uh, and I, I actually think some people that say they don't like cilantro, and they say it tastes like feet. <laughs> some people really don't like cilantro. My sister-in-law hates it. But I think there's people that have probably tried to grow it. It bolts, and they try to use the leaf form when it bolts, and it does taste like feet. That, that's exactly how I would describe it. So give it another shot if that's maybe what happened to you. But if you try cilantro, um, it, it's fantastic. And the leaves are a little bit bigger. And so they're more of like something you can slice up. So they're really good in Vietnamese food. Uh, they're really good in, it's really good in tacos, anything like that. It works really well for. Uh, not a lot of medicinal value that I'm aware of anyway, but I just thought it'd be a cool one to put on the list for you today. 
Next up today, bergamot or bee balm. Bee balm is like one of my favorite plants ever. First of all, it is my favorite herb to blend with other herbs and make a tea. Uh, bergamot, I, I guess they call it wild bergamot because it has a very similar fa flavor profile to the oil from the bergamot orange, which if you've ever had Earl Grey tea, oil of bergamot is what they mist the tea leaves with, and it gives it that velvety. That's why Earl Grey tea has that velvety flavor. I got to you know, tea, Earl Grey hot, right? Jean-Luc Picard, right? That, that amazing flavor that there's something different about it than any other tea in Earl Grey is that oil of bergamot. Totally different plant. You know, you got an orange tree that grows in Italy, and you got a, an herb that grows all over America called bee balm, a.k.a. wild bergamot. i got to believe there's a connection because it's the same flavor. I actually, until I learned about this, I thought that's what Earl Grey tea was. Well, it must be this oil of bergamot. I didn't know it was an orange. Um, it is a member of the mint family, so it propagates just like mint. Cut a sprig, stick it in some soil, keep it in the shade till it roots and gets established and it grows. It produces these big, beautiful flowers, and there's different cultivars of it. There's kind of like a purpley, pinkish hue color. There's a red scarlet. As far as uh, as uses, they're pretty much all the same. There's even like double crown versions of it. It is one of those things that people worry about being invasive. And I think what might be invasive for some people is not for others. My uh, my my stepson, who's I just call him my son, but in this case I have to explain my stepson. His aunt from his birth father uh, lives up in upstate New York, and um, her husband is a guy named Dale, and he loves gardening and stuff like that. Especially now he's retired, he has time for it. You know, in New York it rains like if it goes more than two weeks without raining in the summer, people start calling it a drought. Right? You get a lot of rain, you get an explosive growth season. And when he saw it growing right in my garden, he couldn't believe it. He's like, I have that stuff in my weed lines and stuff, and it just shows up everywhere, and can't keep it down. And I started telling him all the things he could do with it, and he was like, well, that's good, but I still have to pull it out. And I'm like, I wish I had that problem. But the way I grew it in the garden, though, I went to Home Depot, and I got the peel-and-stick floor tiles that look like wood. They're like three foot long and four inches wide. And I took like four of them, And I made loops out of them and glued them together and put them down in the garden like a little sleeve. And I planted the bergamot right in there. And it worked. It did occasionally try to crawl over. And I just cut it off. And like if I said, if it got out, I wasn't that worried about it anyway. Um, but I was able to grow bergamot right in the middle of a four by, uh, four by eight bed for several seasons that way with it coming back every year and propagated out to other places. Uh, again, it's one of my favorite herbs from a, a tea making standpoint. And then the pollinator predator habitat, and then the confusing smells. Again, I want all these herbs to do all these wonderful things. But one thing is, if you have pest insects and they land on their preferred thing, let's say they're a pest of a lettuce plant, and it lands on a lettuce plant, and there's nothing but lettuce, a whole row of lettuce. Woo! I made it. And it says, This is the place to be. And it sets up camp, and it sends out pheromones. And other members of its species show up, and they all have an eat-your-lettuce party. And they all lay eggs, and the eggs all hatch right in the lettuce plant, uh, lettuce row. And then that pest becomes endemic to that row. And one of the ways we try to get away with that is by crop rotation. But, hey, your backyard's only so big, they only got to move a couple rows and do it all again. They found it the first time before they were there. 
But let's say that that little pest insect, looking for some lettuce, lands a couple feet away from some lettuce and gets a whiff of onion, parsley, bee balm, lettuce, dill, garlic. What the hell's going on here? So he's confused and he's looking around. Boom! His predator just came out of that dill plant or that bergamot plant and ate him. And the best thing about biological pest control, building up predators, is there is no immunity to being eaten. A pest can develop an immunity to just about any chemical out there. But nothing is immune to having its head eaten off of its body. Once that happens, you are done causing problems for the world. So love bee balm for that. The next is lemon balm. And whenever you hear balm, think medicinal. If something has the word balm in it, that just tells you that, it, that its name comes from a tradition of being used medicinally. And both lemon balm and bee balm are amazing plants for a lot of medicinal uses. But again, I'm back to tea. And lemon balm and bee balm together, just those two alone in a tea, are fantastic. But combined with a true mint, like a peppermint or a sweet mint, it, it, it really is one of the best teas you can ever make. And when you, when you have that tea, especially sipping that tea hot, and you have a quiet contemplation with it, you wonder why the colonists even revolted over tea from India, from the British. Like, why they didn't just go, hey, we got our own shit here, suck on your tea. The truth is, because the British were making them buy the tea whether they wanted it or not. That's, that's part of it. So they're going to pay the tax on the tea and buy the tea whether they wanted it or not. Um, but, you know, there kind of is a point there that, like, We rely on all this global trade. And I'm not going to stop. You know, we, we can't grow coffee in, in Texas just yet. So I'm not going to stop drinking coffee. And I'm not going to stop drinking, you know, really great black teas from around the world. I, I, I believe in global commerce. But I don't think it needs to be something we rely on to the point where it's always that we need this thing from somewhere way over there. If we can replace a portion with what we can produce locally. And I do know tea can be grown in the United States, true, you know, conventional teas. I've worked on it here. I just don't think I have the right soil for it, even though I could get plants through the winter. Um, but most people can't grow Comenthus, which is the typical tea. Um, but you can grow bee balm and lemon balm and mint. And with those and then blending with other herbs, you can make great teas. And even like yesterday's item of the day was gunpowder green tea from, from China. So that's, you know, that has to come a long way. But if I buy a pound of that gunpowder green tea and I drink a couple cups of that tea every day, it takes a certain amount of time for I use up that pound of tea. But if I use that gunpowder green as a 20% component to a blend that I make with bergamot, lemon balm, and mint, then that bag of tea that came all the way from China lasts five times as long, and I've made a superior product, and I've cut my expense at the same time, and I've had medicinal benefits to it as well. And I've, I've taken that product, which is a caffeine source, and caffeine has its own, like you can have too much caffeine, but caffeine itself is medicinal. Caffeine itself not only speeds up the metabolic system, and that's why it wakes you up, but it also speeds up the absorption of other things. So some of these medicinal properties of these herbs can be sped up with caffeine. So you start to see how all this all spins together. Uh, but love lemon balm. Lemon balm has so many uh, valuable things to it. Um, one of the things is it smells really good to us. 
It smells great to us. And have you ever heard of the mosquito plant? I can't remember what they call that thing now. Um, uh, citronella, right? So lemon balm has the same oil in it, citronella, uh, that uh, the citronella mosquito plant, you know, geranium, whatever, has. And uh, just not quite as much. So it's not so overpowering. Or if you think about those candles you buy, the citronella candles, and it's just way over the top kind of in your face. You would like It doesn't really bother you that it's sitting there burning, but you wouldn't want to rub it on your body. But lemon balm, if you rub it on your arms or on your neck or whatever, it just smells good. Well, if you have lemon balm growing outside in your garden and you're outside doing some work and all of a sudden you hear... The little Satan spawn mosquitoes harassing you, and you pick a couple sprigs of lemon balm up and you rub your arms and your face and your back and your neck, kind of on your shirt and whatever. Not only will you smell good to other people and your dog, mosquitoes will generally leave you alone. Now, I don't know what it is, but there are some people there like a mosquito magnet that like they could bathe and off to the point where they're ready to die, and a mosquito is still going to bite them. So it may not work for everybody. It works really good for me, and if it repels insects. Then it repels insects. Not all, but a lot of insects, including many pest insects. So it's good for a repellent. Next is garlic. And I have heard more than one herbalist, and I'm talking certified master herbalist type, say, if I could have only one herb to work with, I would choose garlic. Am I going to go into it? Like, I could do a whole show on just the medicinal benefits of garlic. But it's incredibly medicinal. And how many recipes that involve cooking and not making a cake or a cookie or something like that, don't call for garlic. Almost everything, every recipe you look at, two cloves of garlic, a clove of garlic, three cloves of garlic, what have you. Because it just tastes so damn good. Now, I'll tell you, the number one way I grow garlic is in my aquaponics system. I buy good garlic at the store, and you ever, when you pull cloves off of garlic, like your outer cloves are all these nice, big, fat cloves, And you smash them, and you get the paper off them, and you chop them up. You throw them into your saute, throw it in at the end, and keep some of those medicinal benefits of the garlic. You get all that good flavor and aroma. There's just so few things in the world that smell better than sautéing and cooking down onions and garlic. Like, it fills the whole house. It's awesome. But then, like, you need some more. So you go back to that head of garlic, and you got all those little fiddly ones, like half of them. They're really thin and narrow and a pain in the ass. And you're there trying to peel them. Like, ah! You throw them away. Nah. If you have one ebb and flow bed, you take all those little fiddly ones and you stick them in your ebb and flow beds. They'll start growing like the next day. I, it, it's crazy how they grow in an ebb and flow bed. And they'll set up these green shoots. And all I do is cut those shoots off and use them like chives. You get all that garlic flavor, and eventually I'll let some of them really start to grow up. And you'll never get a great big head of garlic, but you will get to a point where you get a great big piece and you pull it out and you use the lower piece like you would use a green onion. And it, you know it's it, it's it's great. I also do grow it in the ground. I'll just pop cloves here, or there, everywhere. Don't care. But my favorite garlic is wild garlic. I have like four different varieties of wild garlic on this property. Two of them were here when I got here. Two of them I brought in. And the only way I can tell the difference is the color of the flowers that they get on them in the spring. I've got like a really light, almost white purple. I've got like a deep purple. I've got like a blue, and I got a pink. And I have found, like, you've been out on pastures, walking pastures or whatever in the spring, and I'll see wild garlic, and they get flowers, but then the flowers turn into little seeds, little, little, little mini garlics on the top of the flower stalk. 
And whenever I see those anywhere, I'll t if I always have stuff on me to collect seed with. And I'll collect as much of it as I can, and I'll bring it back to my property. And since that's the time of the year that's dropping anywhere, I'll just toss it all over the place and hope some of it takes. And usually, because it's so hardy, some of it does take. And then once it takes, it starts propagating itself. That's how I got it here. And I have never pulled up, I would say never, in the last 15 years, I've never pulled up any wild garlic. When I was a kid, I used to pull it up all the time and eat the little ends. And it's like, it's a pain in the ass, right, to, to use wild garlic. It's such a small clove down there. But the flowers and those little garlic seed pods are just, oh, they're dynamite in the spring and salads. I always try to leave some behind for propagation. The other thing you can do for wild garlic to get it on your property is a lot of times it's the winter is the best time to find it. Find, you know, a lot of times it grows in like edge areas and like public parks and stuff like that. You'll find it. So when the grass is just barely starting to wake back up for the year, it's just barely starting to turn green, it's really low, you'll see garlic growing really tall because they generally don't mow then. And you can pull it out and you can use it. There's some things to be aware of though. So there's a plant called camas, including one called death camas, that looks a lot on the top and even in the bulb like garlic. You don't want to eat it, obviously, because it's called death camas. I think it's very difficult to eat it because it tastes like shit. Where it used to get consumed is I think there's another kind of camas that's not death camas uh, that's inedible, that gets cooked. And like the pioneers learned about it from the Indians, and they pull a whole bunch out, and maybe you have a couple of the poison ones in with the non-poison ones, and then everybody dies. So since we don't use it that way, I'm not real worried about it, but I just want to point that out. I do have camas on this property, and the, the, the bad kind, the kind that's toxic, right? And uh, since I know it takes a certain amount to kill you, you know, I, I pulled it out and played with it, like smash it up, smell it. It like, doesn't smell like garlic. Break it open and just... Touched my tongue. I'm not advising you to do this, but you know, I'm going to take the risk. Touched my tongue. I'm like, oh, I wouldn't eat that. It tastes like shit. So I don't know why people eat it. Now, maybe if it's cooked, it becomes sweet. I don't know. But if you're using uh, wild garlic the way that I'm telling you to, you're not going to have a problem. Just know that whenever you see, and you can Google it, it's really actually easy to tell the difference. But you do need to know, just because it's kind of an onion garlic-like shape leaf may not be what you think it is. Just want to throw that in there. Uh, next up. Another one you probably don't have to plant. It's probably just going to show up, but plantain. Plantain and comfrey are like my two. Like if I had to pick three medicinal herbs, it would be garlic, comfrey, and plantain. And they do so much good. Plantain is one of those stings, bites, scratches, etc. Um, my grandfather didn't grow comfrey. I didn't learn about comfrey until I grew up. But we had plantain everywhere in the lawn. And I remember one day, I don't know what happened to his finger. I was I was in in Pennsylvania for the summer. This was when I still lived as a kid in Florida. And he had I don't know if it was a burn or a cut, but it was on the side of his like the inside of his index finger. Like you got your bird finger and you got your index finger like the side of the index finger that would touch the bird finger, right? On his left hand, and it looked really bad. And what it looked like is somebody had taken like a really sharp knife and just slivered off a piece of his finger. He says, I got to fix this. Come with me. You know, so I go down there with him. You little kid with your grandpa. You're you know, just happy. Show me these leaves. They pick me up some of them leaves. So pick him some leaves. 
he puts it on his finger, he had me help him put a Band-Aid over it. You know, and then he did it again the next day, and like two, three days in, he goes, come here, let me show you, and he shows me his finger, and it looks just beautifully healed. I was like, my grandfather's a sorcerer, he can cure stuff, and it was amazing to me, and I've never forgotten the power of that herb. It's also a culinary herb. It can be used in salads, it can be used as a cook green. The seeds, a lot like lamb squatters, although not as easy to harvest, very high protein. So it's a survival food. It's something that can boost protein at a time when protein is scarce. It grows everywhere. It's one of several different herbs, along with mullein, that had a nickname among Native Americans of white man's footprints. In other words, wherever we settled, this shit shows up. Like you can tell white people we're here because there's mullein for their toilet paper and there's plantain for their cuts, right? Like there. Um, there are hundreds, hundreds of types of plantain. If I'm confusing you with the name and you're thinking about green bananas, spelled the same, different plant. Some people call this herb plantain to differentiate it from plantain, the banana type plant. Plantain is not the word. The Latin for this plant, especially the broadleaf variety, is plantago major, plantain. That's the proper pronunciation in common language that I'm aware of. So if you're a plantain or plantain, people are probably talking about the same thing, unless they're talking about these fried banana-looking things that are amazing and you should stay away from because they're about a gazillion carbohydrates, but they are really good. Love plantain. I've had a hard time getting broadleaf plantain to go grow here. My buddy Colonel Roy from West Virginia brought me like a bag, like a Ziploc bag half full of plantain seed. So I'm going to get some growing here. I have narrow leaf uh, tonic plantain growing here, and it's useful, but it's not as useful. It's not a good pot herb. So I actually have to struggle to grow plantain. It tells you about my property. Next up, one you just generally don't think of in your garden, ginger. Yep, ginger like ginger root. That's well, tropical, you fool. It'll die. Yeah, but it'll grow first. And it grows remarkably fast. I grew a bunch of it in the aquaponics system last year. It grew great. Uh, all you need to do to grow ginger is go to a like a Whole Foods or something like that, Central Market, someplace that sells organic. Uh, and it has more than like three things when it comes to, like my uh, local Albertson sells organic vegetables, but they have like 20 things. But, you know, you're not going to find turmeric or ginger or a lot of things. You're not going to find an organic version of them. And the reason you want organic is because most of the time a conventional ginger, you could try to grow it. I've just have not had good luck doing it. They spray a, a growth retardant on it that makes it last longer before it starts to go off and rot and what have you. And it makes it not sprout, just like they do with potatoes. So you get an organic ginger, and you the way you plant it, the whole thing is a rhizome. So you put it in the dirt, but you really want to leave a little bit of it exposed, and it'll start growing. It grows a big, beautiful plant, and that rhizome will just kind of grow across horizontally and get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's amazing, a couple chunks of ginger, and by the end of the year, you have a few pounds. And ginger is expensive. Great medicinal plant, great plant for brewing and making meads, uh, looks good, smells great. And once you get it going, as long as you save a little bit to the next season, you can pretty much perpetually grow it forever. So give ginger a shot. Next up, echinacea, uh, also known as purple coneflower. Now, it's probably the best-known immunosupport herb uh, out there today. And in my experience is that actually using it as a raw herb 
for that is difficult. You're better off using something like elderberry or something, or elderberry and garlic. Um, I really grow echinacea more because it looks really cool, and bees and pollinators love it. It's hardy. I mean, I have some uh, roots that I planted last year that grew really well for me, and this is how I found it. I was driving down my road. This is like June, so it's when it's gotten hot here. And I look, and on the side of the road, like just off the side of like an old driveway where the house is gone now, I look and I see echinacea growing. And I'm like, bullshit. I had to see it. I had to, like, I went by, like, no, no, it's not living there. It's like baking in the heat. It's right off the road. It's a high spot, so it's not any moisture at all. This plant has to be, that can't be what it was. So I drive, when I come back home, I look, I go, holy crap. It's echinacea. So I went, I, I went home, and I came back, and I took a picture with my phone where it was because I didn't want to dig it up while it was in full bloom. And I went back, and I got it once it kind of died back for the year, dug the roots up, and it'll propagate from roots. So I dug up the chromes, I guess is what you call them, planted them, and they did really well for me. So that's one way you can get it. Now, you really shouldn't do this in the wild. One of the problems with echinacea is that It's been so harvested with wild crafting that it's actually become threatened. This is a native plant to our ecosystem. Um, and it's been over-harvested in, like, the, the prairies, which is where it's native to. But tr trust me, where that plant was, it wasn't native. And I didn't take it all. I left some. And it came back. So it's, it's good to go. But just be careful if you're going to harvest like that. Don't take it all. You know, a couple root crowns, and, and you're good to go. You can buy root crowns for it. You can buy seed for it. I have found that it is much easier to grow from a root crown than it is from seed. It'll grow from seed, but it's kind of fiddly and a pain in the ass. You might have to go through, you know, 20 starts to get two or three that make it. And then you can keep, then you can propagate for division. So you pull it up. When it's dormant, you pull it apart. You replant it. It keeps growing. Fantastic plant. Last, we have another an, uh, annual called calendula, also known as pot marigold. This is... Not pot like you smoke, pot like you cook in. This is one of those plants that creates some confusion and a reason that people that are that do a lot of herbal work like to use Latin names so that avoids the confusion. Since people call it pot marigold, they also call it marigold. So people will say things like, you can do this with marigold. When you think marigold, you usually think of these little kind of pom-pom-looking flowers that come in yellows and oranges and blends uh, with little forky leaves that you can buy like a big flat of them at Home Depot for like, you know, 50 cents a plant when they're selling them cheap in the spring. That is not the same plant. That is Tagastes uh, species, and it is in, if you eat too much of it, it is, is significantly toxic. Now, Tagastes marigolds have their own value. They are a good pest repellent. They actually topically are a good um, thing for bites and stings and stuff. So is calendula, hence Names get kind of flipped around sometimes, but the stuff you buy at Home Depot, don't go making teas and eating that shit. It's not what it's for. Calendula, on the other side, is a pot herb. You can use the greens and the flowers and eat both of them. The flowers, I think, are really good in salads. The greens are good cooked with other greens. For instance, uh, calendula greens cooked with plantain and lamb's quarter. Pretty awesome. Calendula, though, is, calendula, though, is a medicinal herb. It is used in tons of skin creams and stuff like that. So if you want to know more, you can look it up because I do want to wrap up. But I didn't want to leave calendula out. Um, easily propagated from seed. Does best in a little bit more temperate than the region I'm in. 
Like if you're in like Virginia, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, etc., you can grow the shit out of calendula. As you move further south, especially southwest, we get to more alkaline soils, uh, shallower soils. It just doesn't do as well, but it will do okay for you once you get it established. Again, I want to remind you at the end of this, if you're like, well, he didn't say my favorite herb. And I am not a discriminatory, I'm not an herbal racist, right? I, I believe in equality for all herbs, but we're here at an hour and a half, and I could only cover 20 herbs. And I probably could come up with 10 more lists like this and go through them. My final thoughts are, when it comes to growing herbs, my question isn't so much why, but why not? Why not grow something that you can use in your kitchen, that you can use for your health, that makes everything look better and doesn't ask much for you. Herbs are just one of those things they belong in every garden because they're willing to do so much for so little in return. So consider these 20 herbs and any other herbs you want to grow. Just think about the fact that a lot of the herbs are perennials. And when you put a perennial somewhere, you're saying, I want this here for a long time. doesn't mean you can't get it out, but it might be difficult. Um, the annuals, you know, you don't have to worry as much with that. Definitely your annual herbs that produce seed, your biannual herbs that produce seed, collect seed, and re-sow seed. That is how you're going to develop, again, what we call a land race. And what I mean by that is, so you might buy a particular variety of, uh, let's say, basil. You know, large leaf, sweet basil, whatever. And so then it's that variety. But if you regrow it and regrow it and regrow it on your property, you will have it, you'll, it will self-select. Because you don't plant one seed and grow one plant and put it out. You harvest a Ziploc bag through seed, and you just sow the shit out of it, and the strongest seed grows. And the next year you harvest it again, and you sow it again, and the strongest seed grows. After you do that three or four times, you now are growing plants that are specifically adapted to your land, and therefore they will call a land race. So definitely with your anything that seeds, do that, reseed, develop that strong plant that's endemic, that comes back on its own to your property. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. If you want to help us out, one of the ways you can do that is by becoming a member of the site and getting all the great discounts that we offer. I want to remind you, we do have a large number of seed vendors in the MSB that do discounts. And I've saved that for the end of the day because I just gave you all these wonderful herbs. And like, well, I'm going to go off to Burpee and buy them. Hey, Burpee doesn't support us. Okay? Uh, I'll tell you who supports us. Victory Seeds, Any Seeds, High Mowing Seeds, Eden Brothers Seeds, and Terroir Seeds. And between them, you'll probably be able to find almost everything, not everything, but almost everything I mentioned today. So if you're going to be buying um, herb seed or vegetable seed or any seed, you should probably check and see if one of our supporters has it. And some of the discounts are really good, like Any, I think that's 15%. Eden Brothers does 20%. I mean, a large seed order, Eden Brothers can almost cover the entire cost of your MSB. So if you're an MSB member and you're going to be buying seeds and plants this year, remember we also have Bob Wells Nursery does a discount for you. So make sure you're using those discounts and getting your money back. And if you're not a member, you're like, gee, I want to grow some echinacea and some sage and oregano, and I want to buy some chive seeds, and I want to grow all this stuff that Jack's talking about, hey, Become a member first and get the discount. Benefits section of the MSB is the place to find it. Uh, and that brings us to another thing you can do to help support us, which is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. 
You go there, you'll see all of our reviews on Amazon, but as long as you begin your shopping there, you help us out no matter what you eventually buy. Today we have a product I've brought around, been bringing around for over two years now. It's made by a company called Otium, O-T-I-U-M. It is a Bluetooth FM transmitter for your car or truck. If you bought a new vehicle recently, you probably have no need of this thing. Because most new vehicles, they have Bluetooth-enabled stereos in them. I have a 2005 F-350. Um, it is beat to shit. It has a big old AM, FM cassette. Or it actually does have a disc, a, a, a CD uh, that doesn't work. But the radio works in it where you'd have to pull it out and put a faceplate in it and all. And I thought about putting a better stereo system in it. Um, and I just can't. I can't make myself do it. It's not, it's not worth it to me. These things are $16. Bucks. So I've been recommending these things for about two and a half years. I've sold hundreds of them. Everybody that gets one loves one. The, the, the uh, instructions are in Chinglish. You, know, you can figure it out, but they're in Chinglish. And it, what's amazing to me is you plug this thing in, And you hear this like James Bond level British voice go, waiting for pairing. And then when it pairs, it goes paired. You know, so like they, they got the right uh, vocal uh, uh, model for it. But um, it's been, it was really great. It's been really great. Mine started to get where it's kind of hard to read the screen anymore. It's sitting out there blasted by the sun every day for almost two years. It's a $16 item. Well, so I checked and oh, like, do they still sell it? Because I hate this. I hate it when. I have a product I recommend. Everybody loves it, and they stop making it. Looked it up a couple weeks ago. It looks different, and it's still $16. Bucks. So I'm like, I need to order one. Make sure it's still as good as I think it is, because this looks like a major upgrade. So I ordered one. It works just as good as the old one. It really does, and it does more things. One of the things that I hate about anything that plugs into a 12-volt accessory plug in your vehicle is now I can't use that plug. Right? It, it's, it's taken up. And the main thing you do with it, you plug USB cables in there and charge stuff. The old one had a single USB charging port on the, on the module that plugged in, so you didn't lose that ability. The new one has two. So you can charge two devices, which means you can have run, one running to your battery backpack and one running to your phone. So you always have reserve power going on. Another thing that they did with it, um, they added the ability, it has now a USB reader, so you can have music or audio on a memory stick. And go in there. They always had the micro SD card, but now it does both. Um, it's just, it's better in every way. They took upgrading it seriously, and they did not raise the price. This thing's $16. So poor old Big Red, my old truck, she's never getting a new stereo. I'm sorry, Big Red. This just makes, I can make phone calls on it through the speakers just like you do in a modern vehicle and what have you. So if you have a brand new vehicle, again, you probably don't need this thing, but if you have an older vehicle, And you want to be able to do all the fancy stuff? This little $16 thing, plug it in. It pairs like ease. Like my Toyota 4Runner is the first vehicle we ever had. The last one we bought. Now we have another one, but the first one where I had these types of gadgetry going on, high tech stuff. And at first I didn't really think I needed it, but once I started, yeah, like I love this. I love being able to like tell my phone, call my wife, and it calls her. And I just have a conversation through the speakers, and it goes right back to playing my music or a podcast I'm listening to. And I can stay off the radio where all the ass clowns are. Love it. But even my forerunner sometimes, when I go to like sync my phone and it was synced with my it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't sync sometimes. Like I have to do it like three or four times to get it to work. This thing, waiting for pairing, paired. 
every time. And again, I've sold hundreds of them. No complaints. Check it out. Odium Bluetooth FM transmitter. And anytime you do your shopping at tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do no matter what you buy. Brings us to our song of the day. We are in Chris Stapleton week. As I said yesterday, Chris Stapleton was one of those guys when I first heard his voice, I went, wow, this is different. This is what country music is supposed to be. Now, the song I played for you yesterday, Outlaw State of Mind, I like it, but he doesn't really fully showcase his voice. Today's show, or today's uh, song does. You really get that full gravelly, something different Chris Stapleton voice in this song. It also won like a bunch of awards. I think he got Best New Album or Best Single of the Year, Best New Artist of the Year, something like that, the year that he set it out. This was like his first big release. Uh, the album was Traveler, and the, the, the main song off it was Traveler. Now, um, how this song got written I find equally interesting. So he had lost, I think it was his father, he lost a family member. And at the same time, like a song that he really thought was going to make it on the radio, he just died and he was kind of depressed. And his wife knew like he needed something different. So she bought him like this old jacked up Jeep out in Arizona. And they flew out to get it and they drove it home together through the desert. And it was on that drive home, he started thinking about how we're all just kind of traveling through life. And he started humming the, 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 the rhythm and putting down some lyrics and recording that with his phone. And by the time they got home, he had the whole song ready to go. Kind of really that organic progression of the song. And when I listen to songs like this to talk about moving on, traveling, etc., I, I think we all really like them because there's something, we talked yesterday about kind of the outlaw state of mind, something kind of romantic about that lifestyle. But in the end, you really want to make a difference, you really want to leave something behind, you really want to get the most out of life instead of just traveling through it got to put down some roots. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I see the sunrise creeping in. Everything changes like the desert wind. Here she comes and then she's gone again.